Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and we are living in some very strange times. So today I'm going to share some thoughts with you on these times from some chefs around the globe. Let's get started. Talking to chefs and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Demoni Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Welcome back to the Chef Demoni Podcast, and thanks for joining me. I'm really glad you're here. And if you're new to Chef Demoni, welcome to the show. This podcast is about food, but really the show is all about people. It's about people and their stories. Now, my guests on the show tend to be chefs and lawyers, and that's simply because I've done both of those jobs over the years, with the result that many of the people I know are either chefs or lawyers. Because the show focuses on food, chefs, of course, are the ones who are going to know the most about it. But also, of course, lawyers have got a lot to say, and so occasionally you'll hear from a food-loving lawyer on chef Demoni. Today, though, it's all chefs all the time. At least almost all chefs. I'll explain more later about our final guest, who's actually done both jobs as well. And through this show, you know, I've been so lucky to connect with many, many great chefs, and today you're going to hear from five of them. Two will be familiar to you if you're a long-time listener. You're going to hear again from Chef Jenny Dorsey, who was my guest on episode eight of the show, and you'll hear as well from Chef Willen Lowe, who was on episode 20. Now, my goal for today's episode is to create some sense of community to help us all feel that we're in this together. So what I did this week was reach out to chefs in some pretty diverse places. Jenny Dorsey was in Los Angeles when we spoke, and Will and Lowe had just returned to Singapore from Japan. I also connected with some Las Vegas friends, Chef Daniel Ontiveros and Chef Brian Howard. Now, my wife and I had such a fun evening sharing drinks and laughs with these two last fall, and I was really hoping to see them again in Las Vegas in May, but that's just going to have to be on hold for a little while. In any case, you're going to hear from these two leading Vegas chefs today as well. And finally, I connected with a new friend, Chef Emma Bengtson of Aquavit Restaurant in New York City. I had never connected with Emma before this week, and when I reached out to her on Instagram and asked her if she would be on, this, on the show, she got right back to me, and this is what she said. Yes, sure, I'm in. Let me know when. That's what I love about the hospitality industry. The people in it are actually hospitable. I can't tell you how grateful I am to all the chefs today. And to Emma, whom I'd never spoken to before, thank you for being so generous with your time with someone you didn't even know. Now, as you'll hear, I asked all the chefs about the impact that COVID-19 is having on their communities, on their restaurants, how they're coping, and in some cases, what they're cooking at home these days. All right, so let's get right to the interviews now. Join me for a virtual trip, and our first stop is Los Angeles with Chef Jenny Dorsey. Chef, listen, thank you very much for being back on the show. It's very trying times, to say the least, but I'm really glad that we're able to connect between Vancouver and Los Angeles. Do I have that right? Yeah, back in LA. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the show again. Absolutely. The last time we spoke, we were both in New York, and now you've moved, you and your husband, Matt, have moved out to LA. Before we get into the specific coronavirus theme, for lack of a better word, of this show, tell us a bit about what brought you out to California. 
Yeah, so um, we moved from New York to Los Angeles to try and work on some new clients on the West Coast and also just get our my nonprofit studio Atal up and running on both coasts. We still have half the team over in New York, but I'm over here just kind of doing business development, getting to know the community out in LA. It's such a vibrant food community and like full of just really interesting people, really different types of concepts. And it's very different from New York, which is the coolest part is that uh, I won't I won't mention other cities, but I've been like, you know, lived in other cities in the US who I think kind of want to be in New York or like New York, but LA is totally not like that. LA is just its own thing. And it's just been really invigorating being around different people who have awesome, interesting dreams for the food industry and how they can shape it. So we're just finding new community partners, being able to connect with different media people out here, um, working with a couple different clients that are headquartered out even either in LA or along the West Coast and just being able to, I guess, reach different people this way. Right. Well, it sounds fantastic. I haven't been to LA for a long, long time. My wife and I were booked to come down over the Easter long weekend, but of course that's not happening now. Um, But maybe in the summer. For my listeners who don't know, Chef, can you tell us a bit more about Studio Atau and what, what your goal is with it? Yeah, of course. So Studio Tao is a nonprofit, mission-driven events company. Um, We do a couple different things. So our major thing is that we do various types of public programming. So we'll create, develop, execute, and tour different culinary-based series um, that are rooted in food, art, and social impact and take them to different locations around the country. So we're mostly known for a series called Asian in America, which talks about the Asian American identity through food and drink, virtual reality and poetry. And we've toured across the country from New York to LA and SF and Honolulu with those mostly in museums and cultural institutions. We also have another series called Hidden, which talks about cognitive dissonance and self-acceptance using food and drink immersive dance, VR and poetry. And we're working on a new one called Glass Through Skin that will be more site-specific installation with food and drink. And that will talk about um, the invisibility and normalization of female pain. Uh, we also do custom activations and interesting food-based experiences for clientele, mostly those who also have some sort of, not necessarily nonprofit, but sort of a mission alignment with our own, whether that's improving, you know, improving communication between different diverse communities, furthering feminism, etc. We like to work with organizations that have social impact in their DNA, so to speak. Um, And then our other major arm is community initiatives, which we launched this year. And the main thing that falls under that is something called experimental salons. There are small group discussions where we dive into one really specific topic, take a curated group of industry professionals to talk about that topic. So for example, we just had our first event before all of this uh, happened when it was for the food media industry. And we tackled the topic of tokenization. So our question for the evening was how can food media better represent non-white cultures without tokenizing them? And we had different food media from editors and writers and producers and podcasters in the room to really dive into that topic. And we're hosting these salons across different cities. And then eventually we get them to a place um, where we can put together a toolkit of resources where other people online can readily share that information, be able to access that and share it amongst each other and hopefully get to a point where you as the writer, editor, et cetera, are passionate about 
not tokenizing other people don't have to constantly do the emotional labor of educating the others who might be less well-versed on the subject. Amazing. So you've got so many interesting sounding projects on the go. I can't wait until we are past all of this and hopefully get down to LA and, and take in some event live and in person. <laughs> yes, I were very excited to have an events calendar again because that <laughs> is completely canceled right now. <laughs> Right. No doubt. No doubt. Well, Chef, can, that provides an interesting segue. Can you tell me about your observations on the impact of COVID-19 in two ways? One, on the hospitality industry generally, and then two, because so much of your work focuses on impact on different communities Maybe give us some insight into your observations on how COVID might be landing differently for different groups of people or affecting different groups of people differently. Yeah, I mean, I think you could, um, they're interesting. There's a lot of interesting, like, touch points between the two. I think the big thing that everyone in hospitality has learned, realized, uh, and it's something that we all already knew, it's that. We are a very low margin business and none of us are really prepared for basically long term or even short term. I guess short term could be under six months, but nobody's prepared for short term business interruption. No one had excess savings so that we can or I guess some restaurants did, for, but for the most part, most restaurants, bars, just, you know, hospitality business does not have the cushion to sit around for three months and not be open. We didn't have plans in place for employees if that were the case, which is why most people had to lay off their entire staff or or furlough them. And the staff also similarly did not have a plan in place on what they were going to do in terms of their own finances. And so I think you could see those as like, the reality is our hospitality business has been a really broken like cycle for a long time. And we can talk about how, one of my friends who's a great educator in their space talks a lot about how hospitality is really built on the back of slavery. And I think we can really see how true that is right now. We're used to getting paying and getting paid very, very low amounts for this kind of work. And because of that, people just are not able to help fund their families. They're not able to, you know, be proactive about their future because they're literally just trying to make it work day to day or week to week, paycheck to paycheck. And that's how we've kind of relied on the hospitality industry and this, like our cycle moving consistently over the last few years. And now we're seeing very obviously that that doesn't work. And the thing is we just have nothing, we have nothing in place to do anything about it. Yeah. That's been the hardest thing to see is that like, I didn't, I knew all of this and we talk about it often at the nonprofit. And right now, luckily we're still able to pay our employees. We've had to reduce everyone's hours a little bit, but realistically, we're just we're as unprepared as everyone else. I think it's very difficult to you know see these high level ideas and know that they exist and actually be versus actually being able to implement them at your business because there is no real support for that. People we don't know how to change the business. The, or we don't know how to change the way like hospitality runs because this is this is how it runs. P- consumers expect to pay a certain amount for food. They don't want to pay b- b- above that. You have to pay a certain amount for rent or whatever your other administrative costs are. These are things that I guess we've just assumed it is the way it is. Um, And we really do. What I hope comes out of this, if anything, is that we have like a large scale, like a a re-evaluating of how our entire segment of the industry runs because it's not sustainable, obviously. 
And it's just simply, it's not good for both the business owners that are struggling, but also all the employees who are now out of work. Absolutely. I'm, I'm remembering the last time we spoke uh, during our interview, the, the New York-focused interview, and we talked about the difficulty that businesses in the hospitality sector have in raising wages and in paying living, living wages, because then, of course, you have to put your prices up. And it's such a competitive industry that places who have tried, you know, the all-in gratuity model, that kind of thing, generally have failed. Yeah. And I recall you saying at the time that, in your view, it was up to uh, some bigger players to make the first steps in that direction. Um, and maybe that's even more important now. Would you say that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that for the bigger players, I mean, not only in hospitality, but also just across the industries that have been affected, being the first people to say, hey, we're going to treat our customers in this way by limiting the subscription ah. fees that they need to pay by freezing whatever payments, I think that's like the big thing is how do you limit the money that people need to spend on whatever services you provide? I think we need to see that from the people who can't afford it, who has the, like the, I guess the deep pockets to do so. But also now that we've started been talking about federal stimulus bills and all of that, there's a big petition coalition going on of like the restaurant industry really needs to be bailed out versus airlines or cruises or whatever, because we employ a huge amount of people in this country, even though it's spread across a bunch of small businesses, these are the people that like really need it the most versus like bailing out Boeing, which apparently is struggling too. But you know, that's like Boeing has had many opportunities, resources being able to be able to be more financially, financially stable as they are right now, versus, you know, the mom and pop shop down the street, like they're just trying to make it work. They're a first generation immigrant. They're just trying to bring, you know, they're bring up their son or daughter to go to a good school. Like it's a little bit of a different situation. And I think what we've realized now is how do we amplify the voices of the latter and get them in front of people so that they can get the financial support they need. They actually need. Yeah. Can you tell a chef about let's let's pick something good and something bad. The the bad, there's endless options. But I guess I'm looking for the, the human reaction to the pandemic that we're all facing. So can you pick out one on each side where you see examples of good behavior and an example of bad behavior? Sure. I think um, for good behavior, the overwhelmingly good thing I've seen is that people have realized that community is really important, have started banding together and I think helping each other. And that I've seen that in, you know, big and small ways, for example, just restaurants that might have gotten shut down, they're still keeping their physical location open as like a food hub for children that are, you know, young adults and children that might be food insecure and allowing other places to at least do drop-offs or like have that as a pickup point for places for food. I mean, just like little things like that, that they don't have to do, but they realize would be really helpful for others. And just being able in a way, right now, everyone's a little worried about money. So there's almost this kind of like sharing system where, hey, I have something that you might need, whether it's a space or perhaps it's a, um, a skill, like we can cook or, or perhaps I can offer boxes or whatever it is. And people are starting to pool those resources and help each other, which is really nice. Watching, you know, I think we all bemoan social media a lot, but actually seeing a lot of these partnerships start to take form over social media has also been yes. very welcome because you start seeing people tag other people and be like, hey, you know, check this out. Or, hey, if you need like a really great bowl of pho, like, 
you know, my friend is doing these like family meal give outs at this time over here and just being able to spread the message that way. So that's been very, very good to see just help people helping each other. It's been nice to see all the restaurants start GoFundMes for their employees and make sure that that money is distributed properly and like actually going to the hourly workers. So like, I think that's, it's been a good reminder that people can be good people or people, I I like to believe that people are fundamentally good people and they're starting to, you know, look out for one another. For bad things, I mean, I think the the thing that has really rubbed me the wrong way, like looking at this is all the places that have been, I feel like trying to profit off the situation. I think the worst thing is definitely um, the language from our administration and how much racism and xenophobia has come out of that, which is just really, really hard to see as someone who's also Chinese American. It's definitely, it's one thing to watch all of this unfold and be nervous about it because my business is affected, my husband's business is affected, etc. But it's another thing to feel that there are less educated people across the U.S. who feel that all of this is because like that somehow I am personally responsible for causing this or people like myself are personally responsible for causing this, which is what I've always wanted. But it's just, it's heartbreaking to actually see that people are clinging on to that sort of rhetoric in these times, which unfortunately is natural. It's natural for people to want to hate something when they're scared. You know, that's kind of the point of fear is that if you can direct the fear and the anger at someone, it makes you feel better. Um, but I think otherwise, yeah, the the hard thing is to see people trying to profit off the situation by being like, this is a great time to, you know, sell your life coaching business or when people are anxious, they're more attuned to or more like uh, subject to perhaps spending the money to get that random person to help them through their troubles. And I'm not talking about licensed therapy, licensed therapy, huge fan, but it's like all the like bullshit coaching and all of that stuff that doesn't add value that just prey on people who are nervous. That just makes me so angry. Yes. Agreed. Watching people who the the one glimmer uh, of brightness I saw in that was um, Amazon actually shutting down resellers sites so they couldn't profit from jacking up the price on uh, sanitizer wipes and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, there was what was the guy in Tennessee who like hoarded all of the sanitizer and wanted to sell it. It is unfortunate to be reminded that that's where some people's minds go. But uh, yeah. Oh, well, I suppose. But he so it's kind of amusing. Now he has tons of sanitizer and he's in trouble. So, ha. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, just one or two more things. And back on the positive side of the equation, what tips uh, as a chef would you pass on to people who are now spending a lot more time at home and <laughs> who are rifling through the pantry and uh, looking to cook up something for themselves and their family? Any Any what to cook in a quarantine advice for us? Oh man, I think there's a lot of chefs doing some um, good like live demos and all of that. So definitely like start prowling through Instagram and see what people are doing. My main tips for uh, pantry cooking is definitely try and stock up. I would say stock up on beans, um, stock up on legumes, stock up on quinoa, things that are you know, very wholesome and nutritious and also filling. And then now, I mean, I'm assuming everyone can still kind of go to the grocery store. So just like picking like maybe two to three fresh items a week that stores well, I think this is a good time to be really cognizant of like what actually starts wilting faster than other things in the fridge, what fruits store better in the fridge. For example, apples stay fresh for like ever. I don't know what's in them, but 
So having some fresh things in your fridge where you can perhaps use them over the course of two weeks just to add a little bit of something um, into your food and definitely using frozen vegetables versus using canned vegetables. They're definitely a little bit better tasting. You can do a lot more with them. And I do recommend, especially if you're like, uh, I don't know what everyone's quarantine ability schedule looks like, but if you're able to buy like a batch of fresh things, being able to cook everything in a big batch and then splitting them maybe across a couple Cambros or containers of whatever you have and freezing them so that you have essentially like two meals in one serving that you can heat up. Yes, yes. Love it. Well, listen, Chef, thank you, as always, for taking the time for being back on the show in this very strange time. And stay safe in LA. Thank you. And I think last thing I'll say is everybody should be kind to yourself that if you're cooking and you don't have, it's not the most perfect tasting thing. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's okay. Just like <laughs> it's okay. Enough right now. <laughs> exactly. Well said. Thanks, Chef, as always, for being so generous with your time and for doing the really cool, really creative, and really important work that you do. You and Matt, please stay safe, and I hope we'll be able to connect in Los Angeles later this year. All right, our next stop is fabulous Las Vegas. If you're a longtime listener, you'll know just how much I love this city. And I've been extremely lucky over the years to be a stagiaire, a, a volunteer in the kitchen at Bouchon Bistro in the Venetian Resort Casino. Now, it was there that I met my now friend, chef de cuisine Joshua Crane, and he has welcomed me into his kitchen so often, and I'm so grateful to him for that. I also had the pleasure of working with Daniel Ontiveros, who you're going to hear from shortly. He was, until recently, the executive sous chef at Bouchon, and it was actually Daniel who was on shift the night that I proposed to my now wife in a private dining room in Bouchon. So Josh and Daniel, along with general manager Aaron Pinnell, they've become friends, and I'm really happy to see them every time I go to Las Vegas. Now, quite recently, Chef Daniel moved to Scotch 80 Prime, which is a steakhouse restaurant in the Palms Casino, and it was there last fall that my wife and I had another incredible meal. Now, while we were at Scotch 80, we were reminiscing about another great meal that we had had earlier on that same trip, and that was at Sparrow and Wolf, which is this really cool, really interesting, great restaurant just off the strip in Las Vegas. And wouldn't you know it, toward the end of our evening at Scotch 80 Prime, the chef and owner of Sparrow and Wolf, who is Brian Howard, he dropped by. He bought a round of drinks for us in the adjacent bar, and we had a great chat, the four of us. So it was Brian, Daniel, my wife Baharnas, and me. And it was just a wonderful evening, a wonderful experience. And the Bouchon connection really came full circle because Chef Brian was on the opening team when Bouchon first appeared in Las Vegas. Anyway, suffice it to say that I'm a big fan of the work by Daniel and Brian and Josh and Aaron, and actually Aaron has now joined Daniel at Scotch 80 Prime. I'm grateful to know all of them. And let's get now to Las Vegas, my favorite city to visit. Here's my talk with Chef Brian Howard of Sparrow and Wolf and Chef Daniel Ontiveros of Scotch 80 Prime. Chef, listen, thanks very much for joining me remotely from Las Vegas. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show at, at a very difficult time. Absolutely, man. It's an honor to be here and uh, good to see your face again. <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah, it's good to see you too. And I'm looking forward to my next trip to Vegas when we can meet up again in person. Um, but for now, 
Tell us what the, tell us two things. What's happened and happening at Sparrow and Wolf, your restaurant, and then maybe comment on the mood, the atmosphere generally in Las Vegas. Sure. Well, uh, we've decided to shutter, I I think, two Mondays ago now. Basically, before we got the mandated call here in Las Vegas, uh, we kind of saw the wave coming our way. And, uh, you know, for us, it was really about trying to be as socially responsible as possible and doing our part to keep our staff safe and, you know, the community safe. You know, we originally looked at, you know, we saw like, you know, we've been open for about three years now. We saw a real dynamic shift in business like overnight. You know, it was the first time and well, one, all of our conventions started canceling. So we we immediately lost like $60,000 in parties between now and May. So we we, we saw the, you know, immediate loss in business. And then, you know, the following week, we we still had concrete convention and we were kind of curious how it would work out. Uh, It was actually really busy for us up until... That Saturday, I mean, we did almost 200 covers, and then Sunday went from like 200 to five. Wow! And it was like the first time in three years that we had single-digit reservations ever. So it was kind of scary. You know, we looked at the rest of the week, and like everything was, you know, single-digit or double-digit reservations. Uh, so we we're like, well, we need to adapt. You know, obviously this is coming our way. So we looked at doing a maybe a five-day model, cutting down the menu a little bit, and uh, you know, I think that Sunday I came in and. You know, we're like, well, we've got 13 reservations or we were up to 13 and I'm like, well, we'll do a lamb roast dinner and see if we can get, make some kind of family meal and invite locals in and do a discounted price on it and see if we can just garner some business tonight. The governor had spoken at like four o'clock that, uh, you know, they were going to be shutting down non-essential businesses in the next couple of days. And uh, immediately uh, we went from 17 reservations to three. So we, uh, we decided, you know, it's probably better just to shut it. And, you know, we looked at all of our avenues. You know, do we go to tur- curbside? Do we do takeout? And, you know, at the moment, it was like, well, you know, we did a couple of financial performers and things like that. And we're like, are we, are we just chasing pennies just to keep our staff, you know, essentially just keep our staff working or some of them at least? Are we doing them the benefit or is it better just to kind of lay them off and let them collect 100% of their unemployment? So hard decision to do, one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. But, you know, I thought it was in best interest that we did that. It lessens the amount of stress, I think, on the day-to-day to chase your tail and try to, I mean, I've seen what ha- what's happening now and I'm seeing restaurants that are doing it. And it's like, everybody's trying to be the last man standing in a sense, you know, but they, they're one after another just deciding to shutter, it seems like, from the takeout. There are some are, you know. I commend our community because there's a lot of people that are stepping up and really kind of feeding those in need and, you know, the, the, the children that were going to school at the time. And so, you know, I think, you know, there's a lot of people that are doing good things, but, you know, for us, we, we decided that it was best that we just kind of like less stress on the staff, let them go collect their unemployment. Everybody stays safe and we do our part in kind of trying to control this thing. You know, we are doing some promotions where, uh, you know, all the gift cards that are purchased now, go to our staff directly uh, 100% for those that are laid off. And then we are doing a campaign for a cocktail challenge where locals and bartenders and pretty much anybody does a cocktail video and tags us in it with the Sprome Wolf Challenge. We are uh, donating a meal to a first responder that as of next week will be our goal is to feed 2,000 first responders. And that'll be just like me and two managers in the kitchen, like wow, trying to crank it out and get it done. Cranking it up. Good for you. But outside of that... Outside of that, it's like the rebuild. I mean, I think right now is the real, you know, it's not vacation time. It's time to like focus on 
how do you bounce back? You know, and I, and I, and again, like you guys, uh, you know, pretty much everything shuttered non-essentially and, uh, we're kind of seeing what else comes our way, but for now it's, uh, really focusing on the rebuild and what that looks like, because I feel like there's going to be an economic shift, obviously, and the, the dynamic of the restaurant has to change a little bit. We're not going to be able to just open right back up as we were when we left. So that's kind of like what I'm focusing on right now. Fair enough. Thanks, Chef. And Chef Daniel, thanks for uh, for joining us. This is great. Uh, we've got this three-way call going on now. We've heard uh, from Brian and a, and a little bit about what Sparrow and Wolf has been going through and his response to this, uh, I don't even know what to call it, challenge. I saw that Palms, the whole of the Palms Resort now, like so many others in Las Vegas, is is shuttered, which means that Scotch 80 Prime, your restaurant, is closed too. Can you just tell us a bit about the last few days, weeks in Las Vegas and your experience with uh, with the restaurant closing? Yeah, well, Palms is uh, definitely, it's part of the Stations Casinos brand. But um, yeah, the last couple of weeks have been kind of an eye-opener as to as to what is happening and how we're being affected by it. I mean, from the top to the bottom, you know, it, it, everyone in town is being affected by it and, and across the world, obviously. But just preparing for, for a major shutdown and, and without really any timeline as to when we're really truly going to open is is very stressful in itself and and worrisome you know obviously for a lot of people yeah we uh we spent the last couple of weeks shutting down and and i got a phone call this this uh this week uh to to determine what's going to happen next and and kind of look at some general guidelines but that's that's about as uh, that's where that's where we're at right now we're at a kind of a standstill with with all this and you know just trying to keep each other positive through obviously through through things like this talking about it creating the awareness not only from colleagues and chefs and other people but you know through through everyone else and and through family uh, just trying to keep it all positive yeah keep it po- keep it positive and safe can on the on the positive front can you talk brian was just talking about uh what what i think is a great initiative providing meals to first responders uh daniel can you is there anything that that stands out to you in the midst of all of this depressing news as as a good thing like uh, some positive reactions that you've seen um well i think it it times like this i think it definitely brings everybody together people that you wouldn't suspect to to necessarily help each other out or you know i think i think the 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 urge the sense of urgency becomes a little bit more heightened and in terms of like you know one person helping out another person whether that's the person across the street or you know first responders i think i think we truly understand what they do on a daily basis and and it's not necessarily just the first responders but it's it's all the people that work in these facilities you know it, it could be the the dispatch at at the at the uh, police station or it could be you know things like that you know the secretary at the at the police station or or somebody who's working in and in, 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 in surgical services so somebody who's just taking insurance payments at the hospital like the, all of those people it, it's it's kind of one unit you know it's not just first responders but for for us, i think there's a lot of people that are stepping up in the community whether it's the farmers and sorry to cut you off chef yeah no. um but i mean I, i've got a farmer that's still running and delivering food to people's homes. You know, I mean, I mean, this, this thing has affected just everybody, whether it's the accountant to, you know, the whole domino effect of everybody in the supply chain for our industry. Yeah. And I, and I think anybody that's out there, even if you're still working at some level, you're, you're putting your life at risk. You know, you're, you're to my, in my opinion, you're, you're out there as a first responder in some, some way or another, right. If you, if you got to go out to be a grocery store worker or, you know, I mean, I know these guys at Costco are just getting slammed, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, one that comes to mind. 
Yeah, that that really stood out to me. I've, I've been trying to order food in, but the times that I have uh, gone to the grocery store, you know, everybody's conscious, of course, of keeping distance and that kind of kind of thing. But those people who are standing by the till for eight hours a day deserve a lot of credit. Yeah, yeah. People don't still people don't understand the the distance thing here yet. They're, I think it's a mm-hmm. slowly coming around. And you're starting to see people's mind uh, change to what's really happening. And, and I think it was the same for a lot of us. You know, it was like, oh, it's a flu. Why, why are we freaking out? And then. You're like, holy shit, you know, crazy times indeed. It sure is. It sure is. What what can we, the the general public and the listeners to this podcast are the general public who love food and restaurants. What can we be doing now to help restaurants? Gift cards, one great idea. Anything else that we can be doing to help ensure that you guys and your teams are, are going to make it through this and, and are going to be there on the other side because we all want you there on the other side. Sure. Sure. I think, I think the biggest thing right now, uh, you know, and I, I'm like, you know, you know, definitely support whatever the restaurant initiatives are, whether they're the gift cards or, you know, some way restaurant bonds you're seeing being done right now that you can buy and at a discounted price to use later. You know, there's a lot of restaurants that are doing different initiatives throughout, but you know, I think try to support however you can. And, and in the same token, everybody's got to, you know, hunker down their own their own right, you know, to make sure that they come back out of this. You know, I think the rebuild process is going to be the tougher process of this than what it is now. Because if you stop the bleeding as a restaurant now, you know, you're going to come back to, you know, open it up and, you know, go full throttle where payrolls do, rents do, all this stuff's coming. And if the business is not there, I think the biggest thing is that people go eat out once this is calming down, right? Go out and support them immediately as the best that you can, you know, and everybody's got their, their favorite restaurant. So, you know, I think you'll see a big, you know, I don't know, only time will tell. I mean, the, the thing with this is there's so much uncertainty. Yeah. You know, that that's the, the scary part is that you don't know the outcome, right? You don't know, uh, you know, if, it, you know, and especially with restaurants, the margins are so slim, you know, we're looking at re-engineering what we do in a way that it's more suited for delivery. We're, looking at lower food costs, higher margin items on the menu, less protein based things, you know, trying to adapt to those things that we know that we can have a, a fighting chance at surviving because really it could be like, you know, it'd be two months and, you know, we could wipe ourselves out if, if the business doesn't bounce back. Doesn't come back. So my message to the people is like, just do what you can to support, you know, and we can't support everyone, but you know, if we stick together through this whole process, I think again, like chef said, uh, you know, you're seeing a lot of positive attributes come together where people are, are coming together as a community or people are reconnecting with their family in certain ways. I mean, this has definitely been an eye opener for me and, and, and things that I'm missing in my restaurant, like where we missed on certain things or where I've missed at home, you know? So I think it is kind of like a little bit of a reset button for a lot of things. Very good thoughts. And Daniel, any thoughts on, on what we can be doing? I mean, I, I, I completely agree with, with Brian. Uh, I think he, he hit it right in the, Right on. Just being supportive and, and being positive throughout this whole thing is, is, is the most important thing, you know. Um, and like he said, you know, hum, the, the the goal and the anticipation is to once this is all over or we get past this is is to hopefully get all those foodies, if you will, to, to come out and eat and support and, and things like that. But only time will tell, you know, there, it, it's not easy like coming out of something like this and saying, okay, well, let's, let's go eat right away, you know? So there are going to be a lot of adjustments from not only the community and people who go out to eat, but also the restaurants, you know, whether that, like he said, like Brian said, whether that's open up with a, a smaller menu to, to help control costs and, and labor, you know, open up with a smaller menu or yeah, I, I think that's it. 
Yeah, we're just going to have to consider options. Yeah, I mean, and, and the government, right? I think it starts at the top. Yeah. You know, this has got to, I don't know what they're doing in Canada, but like, you know, there's a lot of things happening here in terms of, you know, pushing out to the government to to help and save our restaurants, you know, like uh, whether it's, uh, you know, I mean, they need to change some bills. I mean, it, it's the, the airline business shouldn't be getting the, the stimulus package. The restaurant business should be, you know, we should be a part of that. You know, I mean, we're such a private sector. I mean, we're in America, it's $860 billion of, of funding or $253 billion of funding. That's just a, a portion of, of what that sector is, you know, where I think it's more revenue than, a lot of things that are getting bailed out. So that's right. It's just, yeah, it starts at the top. Yeah. It's made up in the restaurant sector. It's made up of many, many, many small businesses. Well, listen, thanks you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And of course, can't wait to get back to Vegas and can't wait for you guys to come up to Vancouver. So I had, uh, had a chat with a buddy here who's a, the head of the chef's table society of BC. And he was saying, yeah, if you've got some chef friends in Vegas who want to drop by and participate in something, they put on events all the time. One that he thought about was the salmon festival that we do in the summer. Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, it usually happens in August. Who knows what's going to happen this year? But as soon as I know, I'll let you guys know. Well, I'll be ready to take a trip. That's for uh, that's for sure. I'm making note of it right now. We'll follow up with you. It'd be fantastic. We'll get out there and uh, immediately. If this shit continues, then you know we're, we may bail out to Canada anyway. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I can't wait to get back to Vegas to see these chefs and to dine in their restaurants again. Thanks, guys, for a great talk. And, of course, please stay safe. And that invitation to come cook in Vancouver, that's still open. It just might have to be summer 2021 instead of this year. But really looking forward to it whenever it might happen. All right, we're heading next to New York to speak with Chef Emma Bengtson. Now, Emma leads the kitchen at Aquavit, which has been serving high-end Scandinavian-influenced food in New York since the 1980s. Emma herself has been there almost 10 years. She started out as the pastry chef there and more recently has taken over as the executive chef. Now, I haven't been to Aquavit yet, but that is going to change. I'm going to make a definite point of visiting the restaurant now. It's got a two-star Michelin rating, which of course, is huge, and you'll hear the awe in my voice when I'm talking to Chef Emma. But Emma is also so wonderfully down-to-earth and friendly, and I can't say thanks enough to her for taking the time to talk to this stranger from Vancouver about her restaurant, about New York, and about what's happening there with COVID-19. So to New York City now, join me for my talk with Chef Emma Bengtson. Well, listen, Chef, thank you for taking the time to be on a call all the way from New York. Uh, I really appreciate you, you being on chef Oh, well, thank you for having me, breaking up my, my busy day from home. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, I'm in Vancouver. You're in New York. Uh, I understand you've been in New York for about 10 years now at, yes. uh, at Aquavit. Is that right? Yes, that's right. That's right. Starting out as pastry chef, and you've been the executive chef there now for how long? I took over around Easter 2014, so well, the five, five, six years. 
<laughs> coming up, coming up to six years. Time flies when you're having fun. Well, I, I, I have to say I'm really honored to be speaking to you. I have not spoken to a lot of Michelin-starred chefs, so it, it's wonderful to be talking to you, uh, somebody who operates in that scene in New York. And, and can you give us just a sense of what New York is like these days? It's one of those unreal where you watch the news, you follow everything along, uh, listen to everything that Como is saying, and and then I mean I live up in Harlem, so it's it's a kind of a little bit of a different world up here. We're so already spaced out, so it almost feels like a, a normal day up here. It, it's really weird because I've only been downtown uh, once the last. 10 days and that was to help out at city harvest uh, helping to pack food for people in need and that was more unreal like empty streets empty subways people were almost backing away from you if you came too close and i think new yorkers are really really taking this seriously and and i i, I appreciate it yeah, thank goodness, because it is, of course, such an epicenter. It's good to hear that people are treating it seriously. What do you see within the restaurant community in terms of ways that, that the industry is giving back? Packing up food for people, obviously, is one way. W- what else are you seeing, either with your staff or in the, in the larger restaurant community? I think you see a lot of uh, restaurants that are a little bit more into the boroughs where people are living around you who are actually uh, either packing up and donating food or uh, going into takeaway and things like that. Unfortunately, Aquavit is located in Midtown where pretty much no one lives. So we did take the decision to, to close down the restaurant for this time being. I think we're all trying to come up with ways to encourage each other. There's still a very close uh, knit community online where we are fighting for for each other and for the restaurants and, and signing bill not bills, but <laughs> signing documents to get uh, certain things passed and and helping out organization wise and and things like that. Absolutely. How how was it? Um, can you describe the last day or two at Aquavit after the decision had to come to close? What was that like with staff? How did you deal with the, the produce in the walk-ins? Just what was that moment like? I think. I mean, first of all, it was extremely sad. These these are my family. This is people that I I work with and. Uh, I spend more time with than anyone ever. Yes. <laughs> so it's 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 that tremendous sadness, not knowing if everyone will be all right, if everyone will be okay. Thank God, most of everyone who worked there have family uh, outside of the city or somewhere to go to, and uh, we're all taking care of each other. And and uh, the last couple of days, we let everyone take home whatever food they, they wanted to survive as long as possible, at least at home, you know? So we weren't, it, it's so unreal because we just opened up from this massive renovation in uh, October where we were closed for four months almost. And I had staff who went to other places or took that time to do other things, to be able to come back to us and and work with us, and then now have to do the same thing all over again, and it's 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 heartbreaking to see it. And I just hope we come back stronger 
than ever when we open up again. Yes, absolutely. In in the meantime, Chef, is there something that we, I'm pointing to myself because I'm a member of the public and I'm a member of the public who loves restaurants and I want to do what I can now both to help restaurants and selfishly I want to do that now because I want these restaurants around when all of this passes. So yeah. what what can we, the public, do? I think right now the only thing you can can really do is uh, support the restaurants who took the decision to deliver food or make takeout, support them in actually ordering uh, food. Uh, I know some restaurants are promoting to buy gift cards and things like that to be used when they open up or just be prepared to when all these restaurants do open up, not to be afraid because these are restaurants who know how to take care of health and wash our hands and all those protocols. Like we are trained in that down to the finest. So I think the most everyone can do is not to be afraid when we do open up to go out and support these restaurants. They do everything they can to keep it as safe as possible for employees and for customers. So I think, I think that's the most important thing to actually come back when we come back and support us in, in that decision. Right. I love those words. I think that's great advice. So when we can, make sure we come back strong. Yes. In the meantime, Chef, just one or two more questions. What would you say to people who are at home now, maybe uh, some of the crowd who's more used to dining out and not really much of an accomplished cook? Is there any recipe or technique or approach to cooking at home during these days that you would uh, suggest people try? So I'm, I've been trying to come up with different uh, recipes, recipes that I do at home. And you can see so many chefs out there posting on their Instagram pages uh, what to cook with. Unfortunately, I haven't had the opportunity to run to the supermarket. So for the last couple of days, I've, I've been eating food that wasn't really cookable, like cereals and things like that to stay alive. Yeah. <laughs> yes. um, but um, I'm, I'm getting back to it now. I actually ran down to the supermarket today for the first time and um, I'm trying to post that. I also want to want people to know that nothing can really go wrong, kind of, in a way, because it, it's all about also putting yourself in there to cook. As long as you use ingredients that you like, you're the only one eating it or maybe your family. So just have fun with it, involve your family and, and try and do things like that. Okay. I think I, I love those words. Yeah. And don't be afraid of it because nothing too bad can go wrong if you're cooking with some, some love behind it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, listen, Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time. I will let you get going and uh, I'll look forward to seeing you when I can finally get back to New York. Well, I hope to see you in New York one day. That would be great. <laughs> Thank you, Chef, for such a great talk. I see you are now sharing some cooking tips on Instagram, and I'm definitely going to be following along. See you soon, I hope, in New York City and at Aquavit. All right, our last interview today is all the way in Singapore, and this is with Chef Willen Lowe. But do you remember those lawyers I mentioned at the beginning of the show today? Well, before becoming a full-time professional chef and restaurateur, 
Will spent eight years as a lawyer. You can hear all about his time in law and then how he transitioned to cooking on episode 20 of Chef-Demony. For today, though, join me and Will as we talk about his recent return from Japan. This is a chef with restaurants in Japan, in Taiwan, and in Singapore, and he recently returned to Singapore. He's now in his 14-day self-isolation period, so we talk a little, about, a little bit about that and about just what he's observing in Singapore now. All right, join me. Here's my talk with Chef Willen Lowe. Chef Willen Lowe, thanks for being back on Chef Demony. I really appreciate you taking the time to be back on the show. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Now, am I right that you're quite recently back to Singapore from Japan? That's right. Um, it was a crazy journey trying to get a flight home because many flights were cancelled. No doubt. Well, maybe just walk us through your last couple of days in Japan, closing up your restaurant there, what that was like and, and how it was getting back to Singapore. Right. So first, the um, Hokkaido government uh, issued a state of emergency. As a result, no tourists were coming in. So the restaurant was really quiet. The, the entire Niseko was like a ghost town. Um, it was good for us to snowboard on powder slopes without anyone, but it was terrible for business. And sure. then we started, you know, looking at flights coming home. And of course, many flights were cancelled because of the state of emergency. So I had to travel from Hokkaido to Osaka. And then there we found out that our next flight was cancelled again. And uh, then we booked another flight. And uh, it was luckily the last flight, um, the last direct flight from uh, Osaka to Singapore. And and tell us a bit about what the, the mood, the atmosphere is like in Singapore now. Are people out and about at all? Are rest are any restaurants open? What's what's the scene like? Well, I, I've been I've been isolated at home since I arrived, but on my way home in the cab, it looks like life is pretty much normal. People are still out and about. But my restaurants that are in the business district, business has dropped by more than 50%. I would say maybe 70% now. But are you still able to have guests into the restaurant? Because here, as an example, in Vancouver, restaurants are basically closed to sit-down service. A lot are doing home delivery and they're doing curbside pickup, that kind of thing. But people aren't really going to restaurants. Are, are people still able to do that in Singapore? Well, they have just imposed a ban last night on bars and cinemas. Um, restaurants are still okay, but we have to ensure each table is two meters apart from the next. The other thing, of course, is um, everyone's been asked to work from home. So even though the restaurants are open, not many people are at the offices. So it, it is quite dismal. And it might be a matter of time before the restaurants are shut down too. I, I suspect the government is trying to sort of slow down its approach so it gives business owners some time to plan. Right. And then you think probably more steps may be coming. I, I suspect so, yes. Have some restaurants that are slowing down, we're seeing a lot of layoffs here. Are you seeing any restaurants converting already to trying to focus on a takeout model to a pickup model, promoting gift cards? What strategies are you seeing restaurants take on to just to try to weather the storm, try to survive? Yeah, some restaurants have shut, of course, and have laid off people. Um, there are, a lot of the um, fine dining restaurants, the chefs are saying, you know, you can't come to the restaurant, 
you know, book us. We'll come to your home and, and do a private dining instead. So you're seeing a lot of um, fine dining chefs doing that. Takeouts and uh, takeaways have um, always been part and parcel of the, the business. So it's, it's still going on. Um, I'm sure a lot of people are ordering now, but I don't think it's enough to keep the, um, the industry afloat. What are you seeing with the, or, or hearing, I suppose, given that you're in self-isolation, about the hawker stalls? Are they still managing to function? Yes, they are. But um, from what I understand, business has also dropped by 50%. People are still buying food home, but just generally a lot less people are out at hawker centers and eating places. Um, I see people on the streets, but it could be cost because I'm in um, residential area. Um, so you still see people out and about, but in the business district, I, I understand that uh, there are very few people out there now. What are you hearing on maybe some good news in a time of generally very bad news? Any uh, bright spots, anything that you're seeing either in specific chefs or restaurants or, or the industry generally, people helping people, any bright notes for us to hear about? Last night, I was included in a, in a group chat uh, of um, many different um, restaurant owners and chefs and everyone sort of getting together, sharing ideas with each other, how to um, move forward. And people were sharing ideas because they might have restaurants overseas, how different governments are helping. And we're trying to get as many ideas as possible and uh, try to present to the government some ideas, you know, regarding uh, rent holidays, tax incentives, uh. so it's good to see that the, the industry is sort of getting together and everyone's just really you know, sharing ideas, which I've never seen before, you know, so it, it's it's like um, a big family, really. Well, that's really great to hear, because I remember the last time we spoke, uh, when you appeared on the show before you, you made mention of how important it is for chefs to experience hospitality themselves to remind, to remind them of the magic of the industry. So it's, it's nice to hear that that that's happening, you know, at least in a, in a virtual way in a time of crisis. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, what uh, I remember getting a great tip from you last time uh, about thing, uh, something that people could cook uh, at home quickly, yes. and that's uh, something I've done several times since with either leeks or green onions and then some pork belly. But I'm going to hit you up for uh, for one more or two more. What are what are some good pantry staple recipes? What uh, what can people put together from stuff they already have at home? Well, I think pasta is always going to be a good thing to have at home. Uh, pasta, you know, garlic and onion keeps forever and olive oil. Just saute them with some chilies. Um, if you have canned um, tomatoes, you have canned food, I think that's all, that's all useful. Uh, I keep a lot of frozen uh, meat, um, as you know, uh, pork belly in my freezer, <laughs> you know, and, and, and just... If you have that, and we have lots of thinly sliced pork belly, which is uh, meant for shabu-shabu. So that's really easy to defrost. And I just cut it up, olive oil, garlic, chilies, onions, saute them, add in the pork, get the oil out, throw in the pasta, and voila, it's a simple and satisfying meal. I love it. Okay, I'm going to give it a go because if there was ever a time for comfort food, I think this is that time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, Will, I promise to keep this short and I will. So uh, stay safe. And again, thank you for coming back to, to be on Cheftimony one more time. Always a pleasure. Always, Graham.
Will, as always, it was great to connect. Thanks for working with me through those technological challenges. I'm really, really glad we were able to talk. Please stay safe, and I can't wait to follow along with more of your food adventures once you're done that 14-day self-isolation period. Although I see on Instagram you're even posting now from, from your home as to what you're cooking and eating, so it's great to see. Thank you for joining me as well. These are strange, stressful times, and I hope that today's globetrotting show brought a little sense of community and, and allowed you to connect with the food scene and what people are going through in different places around the world. Thanks to all of my guests today. You, you all really came through on short notice. Now, if during these strange times you've got a little bonus free time on your hands, I would love it if you would give Chef Timoni uh, a rating on some of the podcast apps. Give it a star rating. You can do that on Apple Podcasts and on many of the other directories. Or step right up and leave a written review for the show. Doing either or both of those things really does help other people to discover Chef-Demony. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with a food-loving friend. They may like it as well, and I thank you for considering all of those options. As always, I love to hear from you. It's how I find some of the great guests for the show, how I get some topic suggestions. So if you've got a comment or a question for Chef Demoni, maybe you have a topic suggestion or a chef that you would like to hear from or a lawyer. And <laughs> I don't know whether you can hear probably my cat in the background. That's His Majesty Aslan. In any event, if you've got a chef or a lawyer that you'd like to hear from, a topic suggestion, please do get in touch. It's easy to do. You can message me on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, or just send me an email to graham at cheftimony.com. All right, that is all for today. Please stay safe. Please follow the safety guidelines. Be kind to each other and take good care. I'm Graham McLennan, and I'll see you next Friday right here on Cheftimony. Cheftimony.